0: Welcome to Idaho SESTA's podcast, where we'll be focusing on classroom management this year. This is a place for general and special education teachers of all grade levels to hear about topics important to helping you develop effective classroom management practices to improve student performance and maintain appropriate behavior in your classrooms. I'm Kylie Atkinson, Behavior Coordinator with Idaho SESTA, and I provide supports in regions five and six, so southeast Idaho. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into trauma-informed classrooms. Before listening to this podcast, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to the Trauma-Informed Classroom Podcast. In that podcast, the following points were covered. We hear all the time that we need to incorporate trauma-informed practices into our classrooms and schools, but what does that actually look like? The previous podcast covered five trauma-informed practices to use and explained how to incorporate them into daily teaching. They are one, build supportive relationships, two, implementing environmental design, three, provide social emotional learning, four, plan for professional development, and five, engage in multidisciplinary learning. To hear more about those five strategies, explain more in depth, go back to listen to that podcast. Today, we're going to talk about trauma informed practices more specifically around how to embed those into our crisis management. If you listen to the last podcast about how to develop a crisis plan effectively, we're kind of going off of that. So, while the last podcast for trauma based practices covered interventions to use, I really want to dig deep and how do we also use trauma informed practices. When we're handling a crisis because it happens. So I'm first going to talk about what trauma is, different types of trauma, its effect on the brain, and then we're going to go into some interventions we can use. So first off, what is trauma and what is the spectrum of trauma that we can experience? I'm pulling this from Trauma and Resilience An Adolescent Provider Toolkit from the Adolescent Health Working Group, links will be provided in the show notes. There are a couple types of trauma. The first one we have is acute trauma. This is when we have a single time limited event. It just happens one time, but it's still enough of a traumatic event that it's going to leave some effects on the student, youth, or the adult. Next is chronic trauma. This is when we have multiple traumatic exposures and or events over extended periods of time. The next one is complex trauma. So that's where we still have multiple traumatic exposures, but these often occur within a caregiving system or with people that we know, and it makes it more complex. Next is toxic stress. This is adverse experiences that lead to strong, frequent, or prolonged activation of the body's stress response system. These are linked a lot to um, people who serve in the military or different fields like that. Last is secondary or vicarious trauma, exposure to the trauma of others by providers, family members, partners, or friends in close contact with the traumatized individual. So those are some different types of trauma that we as adults or children can experience. But how does trauma affect the developing brain? This is pulled from Nadine Burke Harris, who's the executive director for the Center for Youth Wellness. From a presentation she did, At Adolescent Health Working Group. Again, links to these will be provided in the show notes. We all know that trauma impacts the development of the brain, but how? So, when triggered into a trauma response over and over and over again, there are major systematic impacts on the developing brain. A lot of this goes into the brain architecture and it becomes very much experience dependent. So, neuroplasticity in the brain is when nerves, are making connections, and we're learning how to keep those connections going. And if the architecture and the way that the bearing is being built, if it's continually being exposed to trauma, then it's being built on shaky ground or not a strong foundation. So for example, we all have normal alarm systems in our brain or body to let us know when we are under threat and mobilize us to fight, to flee, or to freeze in the face of a threat. So when people that are really young, young kids, youth, experience continuous threats or trauma, the body and the brain is put into a chronic state of fear and it activates the survival brain, which is the mid-lower areas of the brain. This can create an overactive alarm system in the developing brain. So what this means is that the brain develops within the concepts of trauma can be more easily triggered into survival brain by trauma reminders, or triggers, even when there's not an actual threat. If you think about that, let's walk that through. So someone who's been continually exposed to trauma is more easily triggered. Things that wouldn't normally trigger other people, or might not even have triggered them before this event, is going to trigger them because they perceive it as a threat, and their brain and their body is going to go into survival mode a lot quicker, This means that they can have a lot of difficulty with the following, managing big emotions, having chronic irritability, anxiety that interferes with problem solving, empathy, expressing concerns or needs in words, taking into account the wider context of a situation, appreciating how one's behavior impacts other people, working in groups, connecting with others. Because of the constant exposure to violence and trauma, children and youth can sometimes even be put into a permanent state of fight or flight where their body never leaves. This makes children and youth react to normal experiences as if they're all life and death threats. This is not a rational cognitive process. It is wired into their physiological response. I wanna repeat that. It is wired, physically wired, into their physiological response. Their body and brain is so used to being in a traumatic experience that they are so practiced on how to keep the body safe and the person safe, that they're constantly in that stage and it's wired to react that way. They have tons of struggles with all those things I just listed. If we're dealing with a student who is in crisis a lot and gets triggered really easily because they have a hard time with these things, that's good for us to know and for us to be able to put interventions into place and how to help. How do we incorporate trauma-based practices into de-escalating the student that's in the crisis cycle? I wanna start with an example of how important knowing the trauma background with the student will help when they're escalated. This is pulled from Joyce Dorado through Child and Adolescent Services. I, again, will link this in the show notes. We're gonna start with an example of a student where we don't know their background and how things were handled. Ryan is an eighth grade boy. This morning when he arrived at school, his teacher asked him for his homework and Ryan did not have it. She expressed frustration and took away his recess as a consequence. A short time later, his desk mate accidentally bumped Ryan. Ryan punched him in the stomach. His teacher, upset by this outburst, began to yell at Ryan to stop. Ryan began to scream, kick chairs, and hide under his desk. After 10 minutes of trying to get Ryan out from under the desk, he was brought to the principal's office and given a five-day suspension for fighting and disruptive behavior that escalated quickly, huh? Now let's hear his traumatic background in regards to what happened. Ryan is an eighth grade boy from a highly under-resourced neighborhood. He's been witnessing severe domestic violence between his parents since he was a baby. One night in front of Ryan, His father beat up and injured his mother so badly that a neighbor called the police. His father was handcuffed and taken away by the police, and his mother was taken in an ambulance to the hospital. Ryan slept little that night, terrified and anxious about what would happen to his mother and father. In the morning, Ryan's neighbor took him to school. This morning, when he arrived at school, his teacher, who did not know about Ryan's traumatic experience, asked him for his homework. When he did not have it, she expressed frustration and took away his recess as a consequence. Ryan was upset and triggered by being in trouble with his teacher. A short time later, his deskmate accidentally bumped Ryan, already triggered to some degree in a heightened state of vigilance or having that what we call the survival brain, where his brain's constantly in survival and can get triggered more easily. This physical contact fully triggered Ryan into a fight or flight reaction. Ryan punched his desk mate in the stomach. His teacher, upset by this outburst, began to yell at Ryan to stop, which further escalated Ryan. He began to scream, kick chairs, and hide under his desk. After 10 minutes of trying to get Ryan out from under the desk, during which time his teacher felt helpless and defeated, and the other children looked on in fear and frustration, was brought to the principal's office. And given a five-day suspension for fighting and disruptive behavior, inadvertently exposing Ryan not only to a major loss of instructional time, but also to a period of time during which he would have no refuge from the trauma and suffering in his home life. That story breaks my heart. And something that I really want to get across is, for some reason, and I run into this all the time, when adults go through traumatic experiences like this, I feel like we tend to have more understanding of why they're being affected the way they are and why they may struggle in life. And then I know we feel the same thing for children, don't get me wrong, but I feel like I run into people who are like, well, they should come to school and they should learn, and we all should know how to behave. So I will run into this with teachers. Well, they'll say, you know, students need to know how to behave. This is how we behave at school, Now, if a fellow colleague came in and just had a rough night with her husband and they're going through a divorce, you might expect them to have lower levels of performance that day. But we need to think about that with students as well. If a student came in from this type of environment the night before, he's going to be in a survival brain mode. And we got to figure that out. And we got to make sure that we're taking that into account. Again, we may not know that the student is going through all of this. That's why it's good just to have good trauma-based practices in your classroom, ready to go. So that way you're making sure that whoever's going through anything traumatic, you're covering it. If you want more information on that, go back and listen to the last podcast. But let's think about Ryan specifically. What could have the team done during this, what we call a crisis cycle, in order to help him de-escalate? Now, if we go through his story... He was kind of in a baseline phase, but he was already kind of triggered from the night before. So he came to school already triggered and I'd say kind of accelerated. And then the agitation happened. The teacher asked him for his homework and got frustrated and he got bumped. Then it just kept escalating and escalating to where he went into a fight or flight response for his brain to, to survive from what he had seen the night before. Then once he de escalated, Instead of talking to him or trying to figure out what's happening, he got suspended and has to go back to an environment where he's going to keep being exposed to that. Let's talk about what we can do in each phase of the crisis cycle. Yi Park put out an article that lists different things that we can do in each phase. Again, I will link that in the show notes. That first phase, again, is the calm phase. This is when a student is at their baseline. Specifically, trauma-impacted students can look like other students in the classroom. They can still be on task and follow rules and expectations. Remember, this is where a teacher can be proactive with their interventions and classroom management and incorporate those five trauma-informed practices mentioned in the previous podcast. Now, hear what she said with the calm phase. Trauma-impaired students can't look like the other students in this phase, but their calm phase may actually be at a higher level than students who don't have trauma because they live in a state where they're more easily triggered. And that's something to keep in the back of your head. Next is that trigger phase. This is when something triggers a student and what it looks like for a student who's trauma impacted, the learning brain or the higher functioning of the frontal lobe goes offline. Verbal warnings or rational arguments that make demands on these higher functions may actually escalate them, and they are physiologically unable to access these functions when they are in a triggered state. Something to remember, it's not that they don't want to, (laughs) it's that they physically can't. When we're working with a student, it is our ethical responsibility as adults to make sure we're meeting them where they're at and supporting them through this. If they physically can't access the part of their brains to help them calm down. So some common triggers with students with trauma is unpredictability, sensory overload, and feeling vulnerable or frustrated. What can we do as staff? We can remove or address the aversive stimulus Redirect the students' thoughts and remind them what you taught them previously. If this is a student that has trauma, there should be some type of instruction happening when they're in a calm phase of what they can do to handle themselves and practice it. Practice it over and over and over again. As adults, we need to do this, right? I am not perfect. And when I get triggered or something happens to me, It is hard for me to react appropriately sometimes too. And I'm an adult who's practiced these things. But it is worth the time to look at the student and help them practice ways to be able to help themselves TS late. And if they can't, doing it with them. This is where you can involve your school counselor or a multidisciplinary team. Again, listen to the previous podcast for ideas on that. Next is the agitation phase. This is when the change that initially happened, so that trigger, is persisting or there's another stimuli or something going on in the environment that may not have been aversive at first but is going to contribute to it. What are some interventions and things we can do? We can remove the student or modify the problem, redirection, anticipate the problem behavior and intervene before, get to know your students and what they need, pay attention to the classroom environment and how it might be impacting students, And anticipating is better than reacting. Next is that acceleration. This is when they're going to exhibit behaviors that are going to elicit a response. That's when we start to see more of the arguing back and forth, the verbal threats, those type of things. So what can we do? Remember to have teacher empathy and proximity, relaxation techniques, a prearranged signal, emphasize student choices and responsibilities, clear and simple language, Avoid escalation responses like getting in the student's face, discrediting the student, engaging in power struggles and raising your voice. I remember one of my first years working as a behavior specialist, I won't ever forget this, was working with some colleagues and the way that they explained this just helped me understand it. The problem with the power struggle is the student has already escalated, so they're at a certain level. And then what we naturally do as humans when we're frustrated or escalated is if someone kind of ups that and gets a little bit higher than what the state we're in, if we're already upset, we naturally want to get higher and then they get higher and then we get higher and then it just becomes a more escalated problem. Our responsibility as the adults in this student's life is to not go higher than them. It is to stay calm and keep the level at a calm level. That way it's not us power struggling and going back and forth till they erupt. It's us staying at a calm level and staying there and staying there, no matter what they say or do, which can be hard. Inside, you might be freaking out or you might be getting frustrated. And it's okay to tap out if you're frustrated. We're human too. But it is our responsibility to keep the situation calm and not join them in their escalation, but be the calmness around them so that they can calm back down. Power struggles will never work. Raising your voice will never work. It's just going to escalate further. And remember their trauma background. If you're frustrated and you're trying to stay calm, remember their background and what they've gone through. You think about Ryan's story, that breaks my heart. No wonder the kid did what he did because he's seen it modeled at home. He's constantly living in a fight or flight. How would I react if that's the house I was living in as as an adult with better coping skills? Keep that in the back of your mind as you're working with this student. Next is the peak phase. In this phase, um, it's gonna be what we talked about in the last podcast when we talked about how to write out a crisis cycle. The peak phase is, They're completely escalated at the top. They're being aggressive. We see property destruction. At this point, our responsibility is to keep them safe and others safe. This is not a time to try to get them to do things or reinforce rules. This is literally just waiting and trying to get them to calm down. Very little interaction and just making sure everybody is safe especially at this point, if I know someone has a trauma background where they've been abused physically or verbally, I'm going to avoid touching them at all costs as well. Unless they're going to hurt themselves or others, I'm not going to touch them. I'm going to wait for them to calm down. The next stage is that de-escalation stage. So that's where they've started to calm down and they're starting to de-escalate. But remember, they're not fully de-escalated. This is where we can see confusion, some remorse, but they're not completely stable yet again. This is where we're supposed to be trying to determine how we know if they've started to calm down. And again, this is not the time to put demands on the student. This is not the time to be trying to dialogue what happened. This is the time to maybe put very simple demands to see if they have some type of understanding, and they can follow simple directions like touch your nose to make sure that they're a little bit calmer. This is working again through what de-escalation techniques they can use to fully de-escalate themselves. Because if we do something that triggers them again, they're already still in a fight or flight mode and they can easily get escalated again. The last one is the recovery phase. Now, remember, this is the phase where they've mostly de-escalated but they're actually going to dip lower than their baseline because they're tired. They're overwhelmed. So we have to be careful what we represent in the environment, the things we ask them to do. If we need them to get back to work, let's do it a little bit more slowly. Think about a time when you've been really tired or upset and you've calmed down and you've had to go back and do something. You kind of do it slowly, right? You build up to it. This is also what we got to remember. If a student already has a trauma-impacted brain, their baseline is higher than most of the average kids because they're still in a fight-or-flight response. We have to remember that and be careful on how we represent things. The best way to help a student with a trauma background is to prevent a crisis situation from even occurring. How do we do that? A trauma system consists of a traumatized young person who has difficulty regulating emotions and behavior, and the social environment or system of care that is not able to help the child regulate these emotional states. That's when you have a trauma system that's not effective, when you have those two components. How do we flip that and make sure that we are an effective trauma system that can help with the student and help de-escalate them? How do we become a trauma-informed environment You're gonna shift from a model that asks, what is wrong with you? To ones that ask, what happened to you? A new question emerges, how can we shift the school environment and classroom practices to respond more effectively to your needs? We're gonna make an effort not to exclude the student from school. I will say this and I will go to my grave saying this, suspending a student never works. (laughs) It does not correct behavior. It does not teach new behavior. You're not going to see anything get better. And if anything, it's going to get worse, especially with a student with a trauma-informed background that's going to be going back to an environment or to a system at home that is not going to be supporting them. How do we keep this kid in school? How do we make school a safe environment? How do we give them these skills? We need to shape behavior by helping them recognize the impact of their actions. But doing that in a time when they're not escalated and making sure they feel safe. We're going to build their capacity to manage strong emotions, invest great energy, creativity, and resources up front in order to support young people's long-term success. And make sure we're taking the long view and understanding that behavior change is slow and incremental. A lot of the times when we get called up, it's bring your wand, fix it. I got two weeks. That's not how that's going to work. Especially with someone that has a trauma background, if they've been dealing with this for years, it's going to take a long time. Research showed that sometimes it takes even two times the amount of time they have been engaging in behaviors. So if you've had a student who's been doing this for five years, it's going to take at least five years for them to see complete shift. It's going to take time. That is okay, and that's something that we have to incorporate into our practices. Now, if you want more information on some of the good interventions we can be putting into place, not just how to respond for the crisis cycle, go back to the episode on trauma informed classrooms. I also want to emphasize that, again, a crisis plan is never the only thing that you should be doing. We need to understand how to handle crisis cycles, but... We also need to be making sure we're putting preventive interventions in place as well. That is how the recipe is gonna work. If you don't do both, you're gonna have a really flat cake that you didn't put flour in, or you're gonna be missing an ingredient and it's not gonna taste good. It's gonna be too salty or too sweet because you have to have both. You cannot expect a student to learn these skills without being taught and having proper interventions into place. We do this for math. We do this for reading. We do this for any other academic intervention. But when it comes to social skills and behavior skills, we have to do this as well. We cannot just assume that they are getting this in other environments, especially if they have a trauma background. It is our ethical responsibility to be making sure we're doing both. In closing today, we took a deeper dive into trauma-informed classrooms, specifically how to handle a crisis situation through the lens of trauma-informed practices. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. You can request assistance from your behavior coordinator by reaching out to us independently through our email, or you can submit a ticket through our help desk. That's at idahocesta.org slash home, and you just click on the request assistance page. I'd like to thank Idaho Training Clearinghouse for helping us to bring this podcast to you. The ITC has been making special education, training opportunities and resources available to school professionals and parents for many years. Whether you're looking for behavioral strategies, how to write quality support for professionals, assistive technology, collaborating with general education teachers and so much more, the ITC is a great first stop. Topics are covered with modules, webinars, and downloadable resources right from your desktop or handheld device. Visit idahotc.com and begin your search with our behavior topics page to see what's already there. I wanna thank you all for joining me today. I was really excited to bring all this content to you, and I want to give a special thank you for giving me your time and your ears. You can find this in future podcasts as well as other great resources on topics relevant to classroom management on the Out of the Box series webpage, located on the Idaho Training Clearinghouse at idahotc.com slash behavior. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day.